Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Great. Um, thanks, Moses, and great pronunciation, by the way, of some of those ancient places. Pamphylia, I like it. Um, so this is um, the fourth message in our six-part sermon series on Acts, the early church. And Moses, who was just up here a moment ago, um, started us off in this series a few weeks ago by fast-forwarding to the end of Paul's life. He said, all right, in this series, we're going to be talking a lot about Acts, which means we're going to be talking a lot about Paul. So let's set the stage by skipping to the end, where he tells us, this is what has motivated me this whole time, to work hard and to sacrifice for the kingdom. And he says, it was my love and longing for Jesus to appear. So as we get into this Acts series, um, we need to know what motivated Paul, what motivated those early Christians, because it's what needs to motivate us as we absorb these foundational teachings of Acts. Um, then Phil gave the second message in this series where he talked about what I think is the most foundational teaching of all in Acts, which is that God fulfills his promise to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in all believers. And that has more power more power than anything that the world has to throw at us because it's for a purpose. It's for God's purpose. Um, then in the third message last week, um, Marcy gave a message on transformation and on the need for encounter to be transformed. She talked about Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus, his first encounter with Jesus and how that transformed him. Then she talked about her own first encounter and how that set the stage for her life and for her ministry. Transformation is God's plan for all of us, and we all need to continually encounter the Lord for that to happen. Um, so that brings us to today, to the fourth message in this series, and I'll be talking about unity. Lots of places in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, talk about unity. But what I think is unique about Acts is that it doesn't just talk about what unity is, it gives us a glimpse into what it isn't by presenting some kind of tricky situations, and that's what I want to talk about today. Um, I was talking on the phone this week to my good friend Gary Broyles. He used to be a lay pastor here, and he's always got some wisdom to share, especially about this generation, our generation, and how we relate to God. And he said, you know what, Alicia? We just, in this generation, we really like our comfort, and we really like to talk about God's blessings. But if you read the Bible, you'll see that the Bible, that, that God is always stressing people out. He's always challenging people. And um, I said, yeah, yeah, I know, Gary, don't worry. I'm going to talk about some of that stressful stuff today. Um, by the way, if you know Gary, will you give him a call this week? He's turning 81 years old this Friday. Um, so what set me off in this direction, what got me asking questions about unity was Acts 15. Um, you heard Moses read um, that scene in Acts 15 that I want to focus on. Um, towards the end of Acts 15, there's a scene between Paul and Barnabas. Um, the Bible calls it a sharp disagreement, right? A disagreement so sharp that they parted ways. But let's rewind. Who is Paul? Who is Barnabas and how did we get here? Um, so we've talked a lot about Paul recently, so we know that Paul used to be Saul. Saul who viciously persecuted the Christians, but then had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And um, 
He became Paul. He became Paul the Apostle, Paul who writes half of the New Testament. Barnabas isn't quite as well known as Paul, but he's important too. Um, he's introduced to us in Acts as an early Christian who sold his land and gave the money to the apostles. The Bible calls him a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Well, when Paul first comes to Jerusalem and he first starts interacting with those early Christians, they were afraid of him for good reason, right? Because of his Saul days. But Bartimaeus built a bridge between Paul and those Christians. He vouched for him. So naturally, they became close, and they go on a missions trip together. On their first missions trip, Paul and Bartimaeus bring a helper along with them. They bring John Mark, also known as Mark. Um, Mark is Barnabas's first, uh, he's his cousin, and um, he's actually the author of the book of Mark, so the name should be familiar to you. He wrote one of the, the four gospel books. Um, and on this missions trip, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, they travel through a lot of the Gentile areas and they spread the gospel. But halfway through the trip, um, Mark deserts Paul and Barnabas. We don't know why, but that becomes the source of the sharp disagreement. Um, so later on, Paul and Barnabas are planning their second missions trip. And Barnabas says, you know what? I wanna give Mark another chance. I wanna bring him along with us on this second trip. And Paul says, no, that's not a good idea. But Barnabas is not willing to leave him behind. So um, this led to that disagreement so sharp that they went their separate ways. Um, from there, Barnabas traveled with Mark, and Paul chose Silas as his companion, and the Bible doesn't talk about Paul and Barnabas being together again. So for me, one of the most moving things about the book of Acts is the strong unity that you see in the early Christians. Acts chapter 1 says they joined together constantly in prayer. Then Acts chapter 2 says on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. Acts chapter 4 says they were all of one mind and heart. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything that they had. That unity in that place was so powerful. It ushered in a, the, the, it ushered in a move of the Holy Spirit so great that the gospel began to spread like wildfire. And so that's what grabbed me. How could this disunity between Barnabas and Paul happen in the midst of such powerful, world-changing, game-changing unity? I really sensed that there was some insight in that that God wanted us to pursue today. Um, so let's start the conversation with three things this morning, three insights that we can start with to begin to better understand what unity is. The first is, unity is an already, not yet concept. The second, God can use disunity for good. And then the third, we can't be afraid to disagree. Those are the three parts of today's message. Um, so part one, unity is an already, not yet concept. When I first started seriously reading the Bible, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this tension that I seemed to find everywhere. It seemed to me like the Bible would make these big, sweeping statements and then pull it back. And if you look at these statements and these pullbacks, it would seem like the Bible was contradicting itself. I'll give you an example. 
It's about sin. Um, so I was prepping to give a sermon on confession for the All Church Retreat earlier this year. And so that meant I wanted to spend some serious time contemplating what the Lord wanted us to know about sin. And I remember reading and rereading 1 John, trying to hear what the Lord wanted us to know. And as I read and reread it, I felt like I was in that constant tension between the big statement and the pullback. Um, so John says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. That's the big statement. But then he pulls it back. He says, but if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So which is it? Is it that we're saved and we don't sin? Or is it that we continue to sin? I want to say both. I want to say both things are true. We don't sin anymore and we continue to sin. Um, but that doesn't quite capture it, right? It's not precise enough, at least not for me, and I end up still feeling really uncomfortable, like I'm in this place of tension. Theologians are the people whose job it is to research and to interpret the Bible so that we can better understand God and better understand what it means to be a Christian. And I've learned that theologians actually have a very precise term for this tension that I've been sitting in. It's really helped me to make sense of the tension, even helped me to get comfortable in it. They call it already, not yet. They say that this age is the already, not yet era. Christ has died and risen. We are redeemed, but he hasn't come yet. So that redemption is only partial. And that is why the Bible is filled with already not yet statements. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is still coming. Christians have been saved. We're still being saved. We've been sanctified. We are in the process of being sanctified. And unity is like that. We are one in Christ, and we are still in the process of becoming one in Christ. Um, John Bloom writes for Desiring God, which is this um, newsletter that I follow, and he says it this way. He says, already not yet in this way. He says, we are becoming what we are. We are redeemed. We are in the kingdom of God. We are saved. We have been sanctified. We are one. These are God's promises, and therefore, we are. But we're also still becoming these things. And while that captures the fullness of the truth for me, finally, um, there's also something else he says. He adds one more dimension. He says there's also a very practical reason why God says it in this way. He says, by believing that we're already these things, it fuels our faith to go and become these things. I think this is a really important thing to understand about following Jesus because otherwise I think it's really easy to become discouraged and to maybe even want to give up. I know I'm saved, but why do I continue to live like I'm not? You know, I know that we as Christians are one, but why is there still so much disunity? This already not yet framework, I think, can help us to really make sense of it, which is important because we're going to miss the mark. Missing the mark is a reality of this already not yet age. All right, so let's move on to part two. Let's talk about how God is not limited by this age, not limited by our realities. He can use disunity for his purpose. Um, before we get there, though, you know, we're talking today about unity amongst people, right? Amongst you and me, uh, you and me, um, with each other. Just for a minute, though, I do want to remind us all that God wants us to be in unity with him, 
right? Unity with him and unity with one another. It's like the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And the reason I want to remind us of this dual mandate is because we have to be keenly aware of how the devil operates, right? The devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he doesn't exist, and he certainly doesn't want us to know his strategies. So we talk about the devil coming between us and God. We talk about that. But what we don't talk about nearly as often is how the devil gets between us. He wants to destroy both parts of that unity dual mandate. Um, Adam said about Eve in Genesis, this is the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. They were in unity. They were in unity with God and with one another. But then the devil enters the picture. And with his lies, he gets between them and God. And he also gets between Adam and Eve. Adam points to Eve and says, it was the woman who made me eat. The devil wants to get between us. And I think that's actually where some of his most pernicious work happens. Galatians chapter 5 warns us, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We are the devil's greatest weapons against one another. Galatians 5 has a lot more to say. Um, it talks about the fruits of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. This is the good fruit we bear when we are gifted the Holy Spirit. It also talks about the bad fruit. Galatians 5 calls it acts of the flesh. And unlike how it sounds, it's not just sexual immorality. Galatians 5 talks about acts of the flesh being dissensions and discord. That's the stuff that the devil uses to get between us because the devil delights in our disunity. And I think it's safe to say he scored a lot of points over the years with politics and COVID and a long list of other things. He's been at it since the beginning, since Adam and Eve, and he certainly scored points when it came to Paul and Barnabas. But that's not the whole story, because God can use the devil's chaos for his purpose. This year, God's been teaching me an important lesson about his sovereignty, how big it is, how all-encompassing. Um, he had me spend months at the beginning of this year reading Job. And if you read even just one chapter of Job, the primary teaching, the one you can't miss, the one you can't get away from is that nothing happens that God doesn't permit to happen. The devil's world in this power may be big and it may be terrible, but Job teaches us very clearly that the devil can't do anything unless God allows him. Whatever the devil does, he does it with permission from God because it forms part of God's plan. It's a clear teaching, but it's not an easy teaching. Um, I would say it's one of the teachings that believers and non-believers struggle with the very most because the natural next question is, well, if God is all-powerful, then why do all these terrible things happen? Why do we all suffer so much? Does it mean he doesn't love me? Does it mean he doesn't care about us? The longer I walk with God, the more comfortable I've gotten with not really being able to answer all of those questions. Because the longer I walk with God, the better I know him. And the more testimonies I hear from all of you, the better I know him. And what he has shown me and what he has shown you is that he is for me. And he is for you. His ways are above our ways, though. We're not always going to know the why. But here's the kicker. 
If he's sovereign, if he is Lord of all, then then that means everything because we don't serve a God who battles it out with evil, right? We battle powers and principalities here in this world, but God does not. Powers and principalities fall under his authority. So if that God, if that God is for me and that God is for you, then we can rest in him no matter the circumstance. So let's talk about how God used Paul and Barnabas' disunity for his purpose. Barnabas, after, after their sharp disagreement, um, Barnabas took Mark and they sailed this way. Then Paul took Silas and they went that way. And they picked up Timothy along the way and um, we can assume Luke was with him too. Um, he's the writer of Acts. And the rest of Acts follows this group here, right? And what do we see? We see churches being strengthened. We see captives being set free. We see the gospel being spread. We see baptisms. Now, Acts doesn't follow Barnabas and Mark, but we can assume that they pressed on for the Lord because other parts of the Bible talk about it. So how did God use disunity? Well, he doubled the mission field. Instead of one group going out with the gospel, you had two groups. God used that disunity for his good. If we take inventory of our lives and of the world around us, I think we can find a lot of examples of how God uses disunity. Take the church, for instance. You know, there are hundreds of denominations of Christianity in the U.S. There's thousands upon thousands if you look around the world. On its face, that is a massive failure, right? All these believers who follow Jesus but can't agree on how, but God's in it. We know he's in it, and he uses it. We can see evidence of it. The Methodists rose up out of the Church of England, and they eventually broke away. And I wonder if they would have had the same voice and influence in the anti-slavery movement if they hadn't. The Pentecostal movement, if we didn't have the Pentecostal movement, would we know what we know about the Holy Spirit and about the spiritual gifts? God uses disunity. All right, so now we're in the third and final part of today's message, Um, and what I want to talk about here is that we can't be afraid to disagree. So, so far this morning, I've been using a handful of words somewhat interchangeably. I've been talking about disagreement and dissension and discord and disunity. I want to now be a little bit more precise about the definitions, and I want to start by zooming in on what the Bible says unity is. Ephesians 4 has some of the best-known verses on unity, and it says that we must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it talks about how we do it, and it turns out it's all about how we treat one another. Ephesians 4 says we must speak in truth to one another. We must treat one another with kindness and compassion. But What's notable is that nowhere in Ephesians 4 does it say that we have to agree. 1 Corinthians says pretty much the same thing. It talks about the parts of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. God put the body together. There should be no division in the body, but one part of the body must take care of the other. They must treat each other well, but they're not all doing the same thing. On the contrary, they all have different parts to play. 
So unity does not mean that we must agree with each other. In fact, if you put for, for, uh, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians together, then it can't mean that because we're each called to have a different role. And we must speak truthfully to each other. So we really, we can't be afraid to disagree. But we have to be vigilant about how we disagree. We can't allow the enemy to turn our disagreement into dissension, which leads into discord. And we can't allow that discord to harden into a unity that separates us from the oneness that we're called to. Once you start looking for it, you realize that there's actually a fair amount of disagreement that's talked about in the Bibles. You actually see a lot of it all over Acts. Um, But let's look at another example this morning of disagreement in Acts. Let's look at chapter 20, which also involves Paul. And in chapter 20, Paul says, um, he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Um, They're really sad to see him leave. Um, And so he tells them, compelled by the spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. He's saying, God has told me that I need to go to Jerusalem. And he's in a hurry because he wants to be there by the day of Pentecost. After leaving the elders, Paul sets sail for Jerusalem. And on on his way, he has to stop in this place called Tyre um, because the ship has to unload its cargo. Um, So he stops there and he seeks out the disciples who are based there. And he spends seven days there. And the Bible says that while he's there, they have a warning for him, these disciples. They say, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's the NIV translation. The Passion translation is even more pointed. It says these disciples prophesied to Paul repeatedly, warning him by the Holy Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Huh. So on one hand, you've got Paul who is regularly having visions and dreams with specific instructions from the Lord. And then on the other hand, you've got the disciples. You've got not just one believer, but multiple believers who are also hearing from God. And the Bible says they're hearing by the Holy Spirit and speaking by the Holy Spirit. So who is right? The point that I want to make is that they disagreed. Paul loved and followed the Lord, and he believed one thing. And the disciples loved and followed the Lord, and they believed another thing. Um, But what happens next now in Tyre is what we should pay especially close attention to, because it's an example to us. It's a master class on how to disagree. So the time comes for Paul to leave Tyre, and he continues on to Jerusalem. Do the the disciples get upset about it? Do they get upset that he doesn't change his mind? Do, Do they get offended that they haven't swayed him? No. The Bible says that um, as Paul is leaving the city, that everyone, the men, the women, and the children, accompany him to the beach to send him off. And then the Bible says that they hugged, and they kissed, and they knelt in the sand, and they prayed together. They didn't resolve their disagreement. They didn't find some middle ground. They simply disagreed, and then they pressed on. Paul pressed on in going to Jerusalem. Just like the disciples pressed on in hosting him, continuing to host him, and then in sending him off with love. Now, the next thing, the next thing I'm about to say is just a theory. The Bible doesn't say this, but what if they were both right? What if Paul was right to continue on to Jerusalem? And what if the disciples were right in telling him that he shouldn't go because that warning would fuel his conviction in his path? Would 
double his preparation for the hardships that he faced in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians says we know in part and we prophesy in part. God designed it that way so that as the different parts of the body, we would have to come together and that we would put together a fuller picture of where the Lord is leading. Disagreement is part of that process and we can't be afraid of it. But how then can we disagree like those disciples and like Paul did in Acts 20 and not like how Paul and Barnabas disagreed in Acts 15? How do we do it well? Um, Marcy Miller is our, uh, is our minister of spiritual formation and she's leading a reading group right now on the book of James. And she sent an email this week on James chapter three. If you didn't get it, let me know. Um, it's on controlling the tongue. And it's a great starting point to try to understand how we can learn to disagree. Let me just read uh, a couple sentences from it. She says, the power of good and evil reside in that very small place together. She's talking about the tongue, of course, and they're often fighting for position. So she says, take a second every time we begin to speak and submit the words. And she says, if I would do that every time I'm about to speak, I would save the world and myself a lot of grief. That's so good. Um, now let's take it a step further this morning. When Marcy says, submit your words to God, how do you think God works on your words? Do you think he swoops in and tweaks a word here and a word there? You know, adds a please and a thank you? Sure, he can do that. That is easy for him. But he also does much deeper work than that. He works on our hearts. It says in Matthew 15, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. So whatever it is you submit to God, whether it's your crisis, your relationship, your job, your words, he gets to work on that. But then he gets to work on your heart to bring it into alignment with his heart. So let's connect that back to the question I asked. How can we learn to disagree without descending into all the bad stuff, into the dissension and discord and disunity? The answer is we submit it to God. We submit ourselves to God. And with his help, we bring our hearts into alignment with his. As I've tried to do this over the years, here's what that has looked like for me. First, I look at the person that I disagree with. Sorry, Ivan, I don't mean to point at you. You're just right there. <laughs> but you know, I try to see them as best as I can through Christ's eyes. And when I look at that person through Christ's eyes, I can't help but to access the love that the Savior has for that person. And I can't help but be moved by that. And in almost every single circumstance, I tend to find that God moves me. He moves me to extend more grace, more grace, more grace, more grace, undeserved and unmerited grace, just like Jesus extended to me on the cross with my salvation. And then I do the same thing, but for myself. I try to look inward and look at myself as clearly as I can through Christ's eyes. And as much as it pains me to admit it, in almost every single circumstance, I tend to find that God moves me to bring more humility inward his humility, like he showed on the cross. I am who God says I am. No more, no less, but no more. I don't have the monopoly on truth or right thinking or right action. I know only in part. 
when we do this, when we look outward and inward with Christ's eyes, when we extend grace out and we bring humility in, we're aligning our hearts to Christ's heart. We're agreeing with Jesus. We're not called to agree with everybody in every circumstance, but we're called to agree with our king. And isn't that the golden opportunity? Um, I'm reaching for my phone here because just yesterday, um, Moses sent me this great quote that I want to read to you guys. It's from this theologian and pastor named Francis Schaeffer, and this is what he says about the golden opportunity. He says, it's in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. Because when everything is going well and we are all standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to this place where there is real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. That really brings already not yet into even sharper focus, right? Um, it's not just attention. It's not just something that we're waiting for. It's the opportunity that's been given to us to agree with our king. And I don't mean to make it sound easy. It is not easy. More often than not, I miss the mark. So the last question I want to pose for today is, what do we do if we miss the mark? You know, what do we do if we find ourselves in disunity? The answer is you don't stay there. So I'm about halfway through this book by Andy Stanley. It's called Not In It to Win It. And it's all about the church and politics and disunity. You know, just some light and easy reading. And Andy says in the book, difference is inevitable, but division is a choice. It's a choice. Just because we've arrived there doesn't mean that we have to stay there. All right, so now I think it's time to let old Paul and Barnabas out of the doghouse, so to speak, um, because they didn't stay there. They didn't stay in disunity. If you pay close attention to Paul's letters, you get some pretty major clues that they bended fences. Um, biblical scholars think that 1 Corinthians was written just a few years after that sharp disagreement about the second missions trip. Um, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions Barnabas in a positive light. He's talking about financial support for the apostles, and he says, I, Paul, and Barnabas are worthy of financial support as we work to proclaim the gospel. There's no trace of bitterness there. And Paul eventually says some really glowing things about Mark too, right? Mark, who he was adamant, couldn't join them on that second missions trip. In 2 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy, hey, go get Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful. He's helpful to me in ministry. Then in Colossians, Paul tells the church there, hey, don't forget, if Mark comes, receive him well, receive him warmly. I wonder how they arrived back in unity. You know, I wonder if they wrote letters of apology or if they had to meet up to reconcile. The Bible's quiet on that. I think maybe for a reason. Not because apology or reconciliation isn't important, it is. Um, but maybe what's more important what we need to focus on is that these men all press on for the Lord. They continue to be laser focused on what they've been called to, on their ministry. Whatever else they say or do, they press on for the Lord. They agree with Jesus. 
They agree with Jesus. And that is where unity begins and ends. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the richness of your word, for Christ who came to become the word. Um, we confess that we barely scratch the surface of truth and understanding. There are things that are just too wonderful for us to know, but um, you gave us the Bible, you gave us Jesus, so that we can become all these things that we already are, including being one in you. So Lord, this morning I, I ask, if there's something in our lives some disagreement, some disunity that you intend to call attention to, Lord, would you help us to be really attuned to that and to respond to that this morning? We rest in your sovereignty, Lord, in your ability to turn pain to promise, to bring good from bad. And every precious day that we walk in this world, we pray that you help us to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.